Well, good evening. It is a great joy, a great pleasure to see you, to be with you tonight. Uh, always love getting to uh, come and worship and study with uh, the family here at, at Lehman Avenue. So many different people that uh, are very special to us that we love a whole lot. And so it's already been a lot of fun. Only been here a few minutes. I've already really enjoyed getting to see people uh, that are near and dear to us. And so that's a blessing. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me. Uh, oh, hey, good to see you. Keep seeing more and more people. It's good to uh, be here. What a blessing. We're going to, don't worry that there wasn't a organized moment for us to read scripture together. We're going to read lots of scripture together over the next few minutes. Uh, let me go ahead and encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke 13. Luke 13, the assignment we've been given tonight is to consider what it means to be a balanced believer in regard to repentance. Uh, we're going to cover that hopefully from a few different angles, but all of the things that we're going to look at tonight are going to be passages and concepts that you're extremely familiar with. So we're only going to, as Peter would say, we're going to remind you about something you know well, and we're going to keep on reminding you about it until we no longer draw breath so that when we're long gone, you will continue to live a way and live a life that you say, you recognize, and you demonstrate. You know that to live a balanced life, it will absolutely be out of whack and out of harmony. But to live a balanced life, you must know and understand and practice repentance. Otherwise, your life won't look like it's supposed to look. It won't feel like it's supposed to feel. And it will be disobedient to Almighty God. Your life must include Regular repentance to have a to live a balanced life. Uh, so I'm thankful for the assignment. I'm thankful to get to study this with you tonight. I'm thankful for the uh, the way you're studying this over the summer, over these couple of months of thinking about what it is to be a, a balanced believer. Because so often it is the case that uh, we have a tendency. We have a tendency as human beings to swing to one end of the pendulum or the other. We get way off base in one direction or we'll try to overcorrect and get way off base in another direction or we'll be all about some things and forget other things. And that just can't be the case. We have to seek to be those that don't fall off the mountainside on either direction but stand there on the top of a, a place where the Lord would have us to be, biblically standing on top of the mountain with the Lord. Uh, that's what we seek. So let me ask you this question. What are some things, and I know you're studying it all summer long, but what would be some things that keep life in balance. And I'm not even thinking about this from the, the bigger scheme of what you've been studying, but I would, I would address it this way. If somebody asked me, what keeps life in balance? I would say there'd be things like this. Well, you need to have a sense of humor. If you can't laugh at things, can't laugh at yourself, um, then you're not going to have a very fun life. You're not going to have a very interesting life. You're going to live a very cold and dark and lonely life. You need a sense of humor. You need to be able to laugh and enjoy things. That's a necess- necessary component. You need a sense of of right and wrong. We need to know what we need to do. We need to know what we need to refrain from doing. We need to have a sense of of what's right, what's wrong. We need a sense, if we can distinguish between right and wrong, you know what that also means? We're going to know that we very often fail. If I know what is good and right and I know what is ugly and evil, I know I participate in that which is not good a lot. And so the next thing that I need is I also need a sense of God's grace I need to know that even the chief of sinners can be forgiven. But then I also need this. I also need a sense of of time. 
And what I mean by that is this. When I say I need a sense of time, I need to, to live a life that's urgent, but not frantic. I need to know that I need to be about the business of God right here, right now, be about my Father's business. There's a sense of urgency. Today's the day I need to repent. Today's the day I need to obey. Today's the day I need to tell someone about Jesus. Live with a sense of urgency, but not frantic, not out of control, not worried, not anxious, but one that recognizes I walk in the light and dwell secure in the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of things that that we need to live a, a balanced life. And part of that absolutely is to recognize our need for repentance. Because if I recognize the difference between right and wrong, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need the grace of God, need the mercy and forgiveness of God, then one of the things I'm going to recognize is I need to repent. So Luke 13, this is the first place we'll look. We're going to use Luke 13 and Luke 15 as a couple of passages that are going to be very uh, instrumental, very key, very helpful. Let's read this passage in Luke 13, starting at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is, Jesus told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We wish we knew more about that specific case. There's several things that we can kind of piece together and make some guesses, make some deductions. We don't know the specific case they're referring to here, but it seems to be this. There was a situation where they had gone into uh, the temple to worship. They'd gone into a place of worship. And Pilate doesn't allow them to continue. And in fact, he not only doesn't allow them to continue, he murders them. And the sacrifices they were offering, you know, the, you slit the throat of the animal and the blood runs down. And, and then their own throats got slit and the blood mingled. So there's the blood of the animals and blood of the men mingles together. It says, they asked about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so Jesus answered them. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. We know where the... Uh, the pool of Siloam is there in Jerusalem. Numerous amazing excavations taken place. So it seems like it makes sense that there was a particular tower that stood there. And at some point it fell. Almost would say it's like one of those natural causes kinds of situations. Maybe a tornado. This area is familiar with tornadoes, right? Maybe something comes through and you're asleep and everything's peaceful and wonderful. And the next thing you know, there's no roof. Or the roof is caved in. Or something to that effect. And that's what happened here. Here were people going about their business, daily lives, doing nothing else but just living moment to moment. And the tower falls and kills 18 of them. Think about how many would have been in the area and only 18 died. He says this. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who had lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's talk about this for a moment. Jesus is going to offer the crowd some very shocking responses. The things that he says to them here are not what they were expecting to hear when they addressed him and approached him. I'm going to tell you, and you know this, you understand, because Jesus made it plain in verses 3 and 5. The key idea to understanding this passage is that all have sinned. All have sinned. 
Now, they may have been coming to Jesus and asking some questions like this. Jesus, who, who was more guilty when, when Pilate killed those Galileans who were in the midst of their sacrificial worship? Who's more guilty, the Galileans or Pilate? Who's the more guilty party here? And Jesus says, wait a minute, you're saying are the Galileans or Pilate more guilty? Let's start here. Look in the mirror. Address yourself first. Or maybe they're asking this. Maybe they're saying, clearly these Galileans are extra bad people. Clearly these Galileans are hypocrites and they're just awful because, wow, how bad do you have to be to be murdered in the middle of your worship? Clearly they were terrible people, right? And Jesus says, wait, wait. What you need to understand is instead of trying to single out and and put up on a high place how terrible they were, what you need to do is recognize you're in the same boat. They didn't expect to hear that. And then there's this. They might have been saying this. Well, it must be Pilate. Pilate is the one who was just extra cruel. Because how wicked do you have to be to kill people while they're worshiping? And again, Jesus responds by saying, listen, those Galileans weren't innocent. It wasn't like they were just innocent people there who were, who were killed. He says, they were sinners just like you. Now that's the answer he keeps giving them. What about this, Jesus? Can you believe this amazing situation? Can you believe this horrifying situation? And he says, you're sinners too. You need to take this terrible situation, this terrible opportunity that should get your attention, that should pull at your heartstrings, that absolutely should cause you pain to know that these people died and other people now are sad, that absolutely should get your attention and hurt your heart. But also what it should do is let you know what those people needed to do was repent. Because judgment came. And what you need to do before it's too late is repent. Because judgment's coming for you too. Unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. They perished. They were judged. Now you need to make recognition of the fact that judgment's coming for you as well. Jesus makes it clear, makes it crystal clear that even the ones who told him about the massacre, even the ones who came and told him about what happened, even they needed to repent. I think of it this way. Jesus saying something like this, because we recognize how just wicked it was for Pilate to act that way. But then for Jesus to say this, you think Pilate's hands have blood on them? Yours do too. Yours do too. Pilate, yes, sinful. He needs to repent. You, People I'm addressing that Jesus would have said, the people I'm standing here in front of, the ones who've come to me with this information, you need to repent also. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. We want to know and to proclaim and to believe and to live that the word of God dwells within us. But if we start making claims about being above and beyond sin, then he says, clearly the word of God doesn't dwell in you. No one stands guiltless before God without Jesus Christ. Romans 14, verse 12, the Bible says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the issue is not... Here in Luke 13, the issue is not what Pilate has done. The issue is not the guilt or the innocence of the Galilean worshipers. That's not the issue. 
the tragic death of those Galileans is a warning to us. Those who meet the Lord but have not repented of sin, they're in a terrifying position. To ignore our need to repent is to live a life that's dishonest, that's dangerous, and that absolutely is out of balance. Because that's one of the things that Jesus is addressing with this crowd that comes to him in Luke 13. They come in, Jesus, we've got some deep philosophical and theological questions for you. You may not be able to handle them. And he says, your life is out of balance. Your thinking is turned upside down. Your hearts are dark. You need to recognize this is a warning call and this is a time for you to be shaken and awakened and start living the way you've been called to live. So the same is true for us. When we read a passage like this here in Luke 13, where these people have asked Jesus about the ins and outs, the intricacies of of this strange occasion, he says it all boils down to this. You must repent. That's the message for us. You must repent. Otherwise, you perish just like others. So let's talk about this then. Let's talk about the nature of repentance. Uh, Be turning in your Bibles uh, all the way over to Luke 15. As we look here in Luke 15, we're going to see that the way we're going to address this, the way we're going to cover this is the way that it's been covered, you know, countless times before this. But we're going to address and study repentance from three different angles, if you will, three different parts of repentance. There's, first of all, having understanding, and then there's feelings, and then there's actions. In other words, it works this way. There's things we know in order to repent. And then there's things we feel in order to repent. And then there's things we do. And if we don't have that complete package, then we haven't really repented the way that Scripture will define it and disclose it to us. So in order to repent in a way that pleases God, glorifies Him, there's things we've got to know, there's things we've got to feel, and there's things we've got to do. And you're going to see all of that come to play here in Luke 15. So let's, let's read it together. It's a very familiar passage, but let's read it anyway so that it's fresh on our minds. Luke 15, let's start at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and sent, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as just one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, 
and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So let's start on those first of of three components to balanced view of repentance. There's things we've got to know, things we've got to recognize, things we've got to see. And the first part of, of true repentance, the first part of a, a balanced understanding of repentance is to recognize the sin. True repentance begins with a, a knowledge of God's will, because you can't repent if you don't know that you've done something wrong. We have to, to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We have to embrace what God has shared with us and reject what God has put beyond the limits. In Luke 15, 17, and 18, he speaks, the son speaks of saying there that I've sinned against heaven and before you. He recognizes that he has sinned. He recognizes that he has done things that the way he treated his father, that was sinful. To have come to, to this man in this time, in this culture, and essentially saying, you know what, I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine. Give it to me now. I can't wait anymore. He knows the way he treated his father was shameful and sinful. He's finally realized that. But he also realizes the way he was living, the way he's living there on, while he's on his own, that's called that reckless, prodigal living. He realizes that's sinful too. And so he's finally come to realize, I am a sinner and I've sinned in these particular specific ways. Well, see, this is where a knowledge of God's word is so important. If we don't know what God's will is, don't know what God's word says, how will we know we're in violation? How will we know we've done something that's sinful? Hebrews chapter 5 at verse 14. The Bible says that solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Then there's this, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Examine the evidence. Examine what it is that God has said. This is what is righteous. This is what's true, good, and beautiful. This is what's false and ugly and bad. And so we have to test, prove, examine, reject what's ugly and hold on to what's true and good. So part of this is about being honest. It's about admitting that we have participated in such things. Because that's often the difficult part. It's so easy to to point out the failures and shortcomings and sins in others. Right? I mean, we can do that all day long. Look out. I can start making a list of all your sins and it'd be easy. But it's difficult to make lists of my own sins. Because it hurts. Don't like to admit certain things. Too much pride. But what we must do is admit that we participated in these things. I want you to think about this with me. In Isaiah 53, we're going to look at a few places in Isaiah here for a minute. In Isaiah 53, there's this beautiful passage It's giving us this forward look, this insight into what the Christ will endure, what the Christ will go through. We know this is one of those passages that that New Testament apostles and disciples could look back to and say, look, this is what the Christ would look like. This is what the Christ would do. And that's who Jesus was. That's what Jesus did. The Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. That's one of the things that we read in the book of Acts. Paul would continually do that. Go back to the Old Testament, arguing, proving, demonstrating that the Christ was Jesus. So here in Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says of 
the Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And listen to this phrase. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I know very often I've heard it described that that's a passage that's, you know, making reference to the brutality and the ugliness of the cross and the things that were happening there were just too ugly to, to look at, so you had to avert your gaze. I think there's more to it than that. Hiding our faces from this one who's different, hiding our faces from this one who's special, hiding our faces from our own sin is a normal reaction because it's so ugly. We don't want to look into the mirror that shows us how ugly we are. It's hard to look at. It's difficult to admit things when those ugly things belong to us. Repentance begins by staring at the ugly truth. I'm a sinner. And my sin, there in Isaiah 53, verse 3, my sin was put on him. The consequences and the ugliness of my sin was put on him. No wonder they didn't want to look. No wonder I don't want to look. No wonder you don't want to look. Because that one in agony, that one in anguish there on the cross, is there because of you and me. Repentance begins by staring at the ugly truth. If you go a few pages over to Isaiah 55, I want you to read with me these lines. This is a call to repentance here in Isaiah 55. Let me just say up front, in these lines in Isaiah 55, 6, 7, 8, and 9, this is a call to repentance. This is not a description of how different God is from us. It's absolutely not. That's in Isaiah 40. That's in plenty of other places. God's the one who created the world, stretched the world out, knows where all the stars are. God's so powerful and wise. He's infinitely beyond us. He is infinite. We are finite. He is necessary. We're contingent. He's the ultimate being. We rely on him for everything. But Isaiah 55 is not teaching that. Isaiah 55 is calling us to be more like him. Isaiah 55 is calling on us to repent of our own selfish, rebellious ways and be more like God. Isaiah 55 at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Now, what's one of the words you think of when you think of repentance? But return, come back. Instead of going away from God, it's time to come back to God. He said, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Now listen, here's the call. Seek the Lord because he can be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Now when you forsake something, when you give something up, biblically speaking, what do you have to do? You have to replace it with something, do you not? I don't just, well, I'm giving up my unrighteous thoughts. Silence. No, it's I'm giving up my unrighteous ways for God's ways. I'm giving up my unrighteous thoughts for God's thoughts. Because he says, let him return to the Lord so that the Lord may have compassion on him. Let him return to God for God will abundantly pardon. And then verse 8, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. But the implication is, but they should be. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways. But the implication is, but they should be. 
Because he's just called the unrighteous man to forsake his ways and thoughts for God's ways and thoughts. He says, my ways are so different from yours, but they need to be the same. Like right now, you've got a situation with your, maybe your boss, maybe you're the boss, and you've got employees, or you're an employee, you've got a boss. You ever heard them say something like, we need to be on the same page. You're over there, I'm over here, we both need to be over here on this path. We need to be on the same page, come on. That's what God's saying here in Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. We need to be on the same page. You're way over there doing your own thing. You need to be here with me. You need to be walking in my path, thinking my thoughts, speaking my words. You need to be doing my thing. And if you haven't been, I'm calling you to repent. This is a call to repentance. My ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. The earth and my ways are higher than your ways, thoughts, higher than your thoughts. He says, but they shouldn't be that way. They should be closely aligned. This is a call to repentance. Don't quote this passage and say, see, this is how different God is from us. No, quote Isaiah 40 for that. In this passage, say, this is how different we are from God, and God's calling us to repentance. God's calling on us to be more like him. He's calling us to walk with him and think like him and talk like him. He's saying, come back, return. If you go on there in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, it goes on to say, because my word's so powerful, when my word goes out, it does just what I want it to. Right? My word doesn't come back to me void. God's word is so powerful it makes a difference. But if, this is the, if, if verses 8 and 9 are teaching that God's so far away from us it can't be understood, then verses 10 and 11 don't make any sense. He's saying you can understand me. He's saying you can, you can get what I'm saying. When I give you my word, verses 10 and 11, you can understand it and love it and embrace it and follow it. And so your ways ought to be my ways and your thoughts ought to be my thoughts because I've given you my heart and my word. So come back. It's a call to repentance. So here's the point that I'm seeking to make. We can't repent of sin unless we know what sin is. And that's the first thing he said there, Isaiah 55, 10, 11. I give you my word so you know what I expect. I've given you my word so you know what I want. So you can know what sin is. You can know what righteousness is. Because you can't repent of sin unless you know what sin is. You can't be sorry for rebellion unless you know God's will. So what is it that God loves? What is it that God hates? What is it that God allows? And what is it that God forbids? What is it that destroys my relationship with God? Well, it's still right there in Isaiah, Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities, your sins have separated you from God. What is it that destroys my relationship with others? Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 12 and 13, that if we cause others to stumble and we do these certain things, that we have sinned against our fellow man. In other words, here's the point. We can know what sin is. And we can know if we're involved in it or not. Absolutely we can know. And to repent, I must first know some things. My mind that God has given me needs to go to work. To repent, I have to recognize sin. I've got to know what sin is and know that I've been involved. Secondly, not only do I have to know about sin, I have to feel something, right? There are some things to know and then some things to feel. I have to, refeel, I have to feel remorse over my sin. If you go back to Luke 15, this same fellow that it says he came to himself. I recognize now. It took, it took getting knocked down. It took getting kicked in the gut and getting spit on. It took getting made fun of. It took being in a pig pen. But I finally realized I've sinned against my Father. I've sinned against the Heavenly Father. I've sinned. But he then begins to feel something. Look at Luke 15, verse 19. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's somebody whose, whose heart's been touched. He wants to come home. He wants to be there. But he recognizes what an ugly, selfish, terrible thing he's done to his father. I don't deserve to be called your son. But I'm hoping that you'll let me come in and, and stay with the servants. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Bible speaks of godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation versus a, a worldly grief that just leads to death. See, there's some that when they get caught, they're just mad they got caught. There's some that are bitter because, you know, other people did the exact same thing and they got away with it. There's some that are angry that they're not receiving what they think they deserve. But then there's others who are heartbroken over what's happened. They're hurt that they've hurt others. It's broken hearts that lead to clear consciences. As it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's the type of repentance that leads to a life without regret. It's broken hearts that lead to clear consciences that lead to lives without regret. I want you to read with me several lines here from the book of Psalms. Uh, We could read a number, but let's just very quickly look at a couple of things here. Go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, let's read the first five verses. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though my gro- or through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Look at verse 5. But I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then go over to 34.15. 34.15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. In verse 18 especially, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those that recognize they've sinned. Those that have broken hearts over their sin. God sees and restores. In Joel chapter 2, Joel 2 verse 12 The Bible says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return, come back, repent. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your heart, tear your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. To repent, I have to feel remorse for what I've done. Simply going through the motions will not suffice. To repent, my heart must break when I recognize how I've sinned against God. In Luke 15, we see a young man who came to himself. He recognized he had sinned. His heart broke. He recognized and he felt emotions. He felt remorse. But he hasn't completed the life of repentance yet, has he? Acknowledging sin and feeling something over sin, that's not all there is. That's the first two steps, but there's one more major, major component. Not only is there things we've got to think and things we've got to feel, there's things we've got to do. This man in Luke 15 in the pig pen, he had to also respond. 
Luke 15, verse 18, he says, I will get up, I will arise, and I will go to my Father. And then he even says this, not only am I going to get up and I'm going to go home, but I'm going to confess. <laughs> I'm going to tell him how I've sinned. I'm going I'm to come clean about what I've done and where I've been and what I've done and what I've said. All those times I'm going to come clean. He knew he had to act. Weeping in the pig pen, all that does is get it extra muddy there. You just weep in the pig pen, you stay in the pig pen. He had to get up and go home. To stay where he was meant that he would die. Repentance without action is not repentance at all. Proverbs 28, verse 13, the Bible says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. Confess. Here's the sin. Here's what I've done. And forsake. Get away from it. There's things to do. That may mean something like actually saying the words, I'm sorry. Finding the person that you've offended and saying, I'm sorry. But then continuing to live a life that demonstrates it. You can't kick somebody in the shin one day, say you're sorry, and then just keep on kicking them in the shin. That's not the way that it works. That's not repentance, is it? A life of repentance is one that says, I recognize how I hurt you. And with the Lord as my helper, I vow, I promise, I won't do that again. With everything I've got, I won't repeat that. I won't injure you that way again. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 5. I want you to see the way these Old Testament examples of of repentance, what they were called to do in the way that uh, this will help us understand New Testament called repentance. Luke, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 5, let's read it, verse 17. Leviticus 5, 17. This is about the guilt offering. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he didn't know it, when he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. So here's the, mentally I recognize I've done something wrong. Emotionally, I recognize I don't like it. I feel bad. It hurts me. I feel remorse. But what's step three? What's to be done? Look at what he says. Verse 18. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and it shall be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He's incurred guilt before the Lord. So upon recognizing sin, they had to bring sacrifice to the priest. This was an outward sign that they recognized their guilt and they were trying to make things right. So for you and for me, we don't bring an animal to a priest anywhere now, but we do, in like fashion, act overtly, clearly, act in such a way that makes it clear, here's the sacrifice I bring. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I'm going to do acts of kindness and love and and generosity and compassion and all these things. I'm going to bind up your wounds and and give the innkeeper some money. I'm going to do all the things that it takes to show that I'm bringing my offering to you here. In Matthew chapter 3 at verse 8, they were told to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you truly repent, prove it. Let's see it demonstrated in your speech and life. Acts chapter 26 verse 20, Paul declared to all people they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. In Acts 2 verse 37, there's that passage that says that crowd of thousands recognized that Jesus was the Christ 
They knew that Jesus was the Savior that Peter had preached about. They knew he was the one that fulfilled all the Old Testament passages. And it says, and they were cut to the heart. So they had acknowledgement in the mind, heart, emotion. And then they said this, what do we do? And they were told in verse 38 to repent and be immersed. And they'd be forgiven and given the gift of the Holy Ghost. So this is a, a lifelong participation. This is not a one-time act. This is a lifestyle each and every time we recognize sin in our lives, it should wound our very souls and we should immediately seek reconciliation. Let's end with these two passages here in 1 John. 1 John 1, verse 7, and then 1 John 1, verse 9. I heard the bell. We'll, we'll end with this. Because what you need to understand from these two passages, we're zeroing in on this concept. Repentance can be a one-time thing in the sense that like Peter told That crowd in Acts 2.38, repent and be immersed. Turn away from sin. Stop being selfish and live for God. Be agonizing over the sin committed and vow to live for Jesus. Repent of your sins and come. But it's not a one-time only situation. It's a lifetime commitment. 1 John 1.7 is a demonstration. If we walk in the light, meaning this is the way you live your life. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, meaning to, as to be walking in the light, each and every time I recognize and see and acknowledge my sins, if I will confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for me, conquered death, so that I don't have to be afraid that he's interceding for me even now at the right hand of the Father. Upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and believing that Jesus is Lord and Savior of sinners, I must repent of my sins, be immersed into Christ, and then continue living a life of repentance. If our hearts are touched by this reality, we're going to seek to change the very direction of our lives. Jesus... And Luke 13 couldn't have been any clearer. Repent or perish. Make this a part of who you are right here, right now, or else judgment looms and you don't want any part of that. Repentance means recognizing sin, feeling remorse over that sin, and then responding in a way that God would have you to respond. The balanced life is honest about the existence of sin, but it's thrilled that sin can be forgiven. Aren't you thrilled that sin can be forgiven? Because that's where we find that meaty, wonderful, happy, abundant middle place. Sin is real. And I'm heavily involved. But Jesus is greater. The blood of Jesus cleanses my sin and continues to cleanse my sin, continues to wash me, continues to keep me in the light, continues to keep me in a place of joy and happiness As I continue to repent, your Lord Jesus is calling upon you to repent even even this day. He seeks for you to live the abundant life. He seeks for you to live the, the balanced life that acknowledges the importance of repentance. And if you're in a spot right here, right now, this night, that you know you need to repent, then what a great opportunity. You've been given a blessing from God. You are able to repent and be restored, or to repent and be immersed and added to the kingdom by Jesus himself, if this is what applies to you this very night, be thankful you've been blessed with this opportunity to live a life of repentance.
even now while we stand and sing.